It's time for mystery. Mystery Radio. Kane transcribed and starring Dane Clark. Private investigator, duly licensed and duly sworn, Peter Chambers. You're a private eye. That's your business. Anything else? That's for laughs. You're strolling along Fifth Avenue on a beautiful spring afternoon, and you stop at the window of Fitch's department store for a peek at the styles. And then suddenly, she's there beside you. A tall blonde with curves, an electric blonde with voltage. She looks undecided, seems as though she wants to say something, and, well, maybe spring has gotten into you. So you start the ball rolling with a deckless piece of dialogue. Beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, lovely. And uh, and the weather, the weather, it's uh, perfect for strolling. Yes. Um, may we stroll? Yes, yes, of course. My name is Angela Wentworth. I'm uh, Peter Chambers. We're going to call on my uncle, Mr. Chambers. We'll go there directly, if you don't mind. Uncle, she says. We're going to call on my uncle. Well, it's springtime in Manhattan and the squirrels are out. But if that's the way she wants it, she's far too beautiful to argue with. So you accompany her to Madison, and in the elegant hotel, you ride up to the tower apartment, and she nibbles with delicate knuckles on a thickly impressive door. My uncle isn't well. I don't want to wake him if he's sleeping. Uh, do you have a key? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Well, then let's use it, huh? Yes, yes, I shall. Inside, you get a back view of an old guy snoozing by an open window. You can't see his hands there in his lap. Angela taps you, and you tiptoe behind her into another room. She sits down and crosses her legs, and you've got trouble keeping your eyes away from her knees. But you manage. Well, do you have it? Uh, 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 I beg your pardon? Did you bring it? Bring what? The earring. Earring? What? Oh, where's my handbag? Handbag. Well, here it is. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Here. Read this. A clipping which I tore from the personal column of the Times. Please read it. Out loud. All right. Let me see now. Uh, if the lady who lost an earring at the art student's ball Friday evening will meet me in front of Fitch's department store Tuesday afternoon between 2 and 2.30, I shall be happy to return... <laughs> now, do you understand? Yes, yes, I do, and I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Sorry? But why? You... Look, look, Miss Wentworth, I didn't insert that ad. You didn't, but... No, no, I just happened to be there, and, well, you were there, and, well, conversation sprang up. Oh. Oh. (laughs) It's funny. Yes. Really funny. But I do think you ought to go now. She sort of starts you on your way, but on your way, you get another look at the old man, and suddenly you don't like it. He hasn't moved, and there's a white waxiness behind his ears. And you go near. What? What is it, Mr. Chambers? He's dead. (sighs) She passes out in a faint, and you let her lie. You go around to the front of the old man, and you take a look. He's got a gun in his hand and two bullet holes in his stomach. You're working at your trade now, and you work quickly and carefully. 
The room's in perfect order, absolutely no sign of a tussle. The old man's still warm, hasn't been dead an hour. Then, toward the middle of the room, you see it. A round red spot that sort of blends in with the russet color of the rug. You touch it. It's blood. Then you go back to the old man, you dig around in his pockets. You come up with a beautiful triangular emerald earring. And just then, Angela Wentworth starts stirring. Easy, easy does it, Miss Wentworth. Come on, come on. Let me help you up. There you are. Oh, my uncle. Uncle. He's dead. He appears to have shot himself. Oh, no. Now, look, look, look. Let's go back to the other room, huh? Come on. Now, there, will you sit down? Thank you. I'll use the phone. Operator. Police headquarters. Emergency. I only left him perhaps an hour ago. Hello? Hello, I want to report a death. That's right, a death. 598 Madison Avenue, a hotel, the Tower Apartment. All right, now, Miss Wentworth, there's nothing we can do but wait for the police. Oh, it's terrible, terrible. Look, I uh, found this this earring in your uncle's pocket. Thank you. It's the mate of the one I lost. Well, what was it doing in your uncle's pocket? That clipping. The person said they would return the lost one if I could identify it. So I brought the mate here to Uncle. Left it with him and intended to bring the finder here with me. Show him the mate to the earring, which would be perfect identification. Is it valuable? Each earring is insured for $20,000, but... Oh, look, Mr. Chambers, may I... May I please call somebody? Well, sure. Who do you want to call? Oliver Hartford, my brother-in-law. He's married to my sister. He came here with my uncle. They... Live way up in New Hampshire, all of them. Mm, what about you? Well, I live here in the city. May I call Oliver? All right, where's he staying? Right here, this hotel. One of the downstairs suites. Well, let's call him. Would you connect me with Mr. Hartford, please? There you are. Oh, thank you. Hello, Ollie. Come up to Uncle's suite. Quickly, please. The guy shows. Oliver Hartford, big, young, and brawny. He sort of takes over in the comfort department for a sister-in-law. And presently, there's an onslaught of cops, medical examiner, fingerprint men, and the works. And boss man of the works, your good friend, Detective Lieutenant Louis Parker. Looking a little harassed today, but working with his usual competence. And then, after they're all done, and the medical examiner has made his report, and the body has been taken out... Parker takes you aside, and you fill him in on your end of the deal. Well, they got me working today. I got three unfinished cases. Now this thing pops up. Well, it never rains. Medical examiner says suicide. The girls identified the gun as the old man's. Emmy says time of death, two o'clock. Door was locked. Who else had keys? Nobody but the old man. He lent his to the girl, and she was with you when the thing happened. Check. Suicide, period. Boy, I am busy today. Now, let me go in and talk to those two, the relatives, and then I'll beat it out of here. Sure, Louie. Let me go talk to them. All right, then, Miss uh, Wentworth, Mr. Hartford. Oh, by the way, Mr. Chambers here is a private detective. One of the best. Oh. So just in case either of you are not satisfied with the way the police may be handling Oh, well, we're, we're perfectly satisfied, Lieutenant, of course. All right, then. Let's get some of the facts out of the way. Hmm? Name of deceased, Robert Wentworth, the rich man, ex-oil man worth many millions, retired widower. Hmm? Yes, his only two living relatives, his nieces, uh... Miss Angela Wentworth, of course, my wife, Marie Wentworth Hartford. Where's your wife now? Why, uh, she's at home up in New Hampshire. See, I came in with Uncle Robert last week. Okay. Medical examiner says suicide, and every external item points to suicide. Time, 2 o'clock. Now, where were you at 2 o'clock, Mr. Hutt? In my room, napping. And you, Miss Wentworth? With Mr. Chambers on Fifth Avenue near Fitch's department. I'll corroborate that, Lieutenant. Thank you, Mr. Chambers. You're very welcome, Mr. Yeah, all, all right. All right. Huh? Sorry, lost my head. <clears throat> now, this suicide thing, would Mr. Wentworth be disposed to suicide? Oh, oh yes. yes. No well, one at a time. That. Now, please, one at a time. Huh? You, Miss Wentworth. Well, Lieutenant, my uncle was very ill. He was here for an operation. The doctors gave him very little chance. Did he know that he had this very little chance? Yes, of course he knew it. Better than any of us. Yeah. Seems to be clean cut, no loose ends. Mr. Hartford. Yes, sir. Would you accompany me downtown? I need a member of the family, many little items of routine. Why, yes, of course, Lieutenant, of course. 
And so you're alone again with Miss Angela Wentworth. You take her home to a cute little apartment on East 34th, and there... Thank you, Mr. Chambers. You've been very kind. Not at all. Uh, look, Angela, ours was a, well, a chance acquaintance, but there's no reason why it should end there. No. No reason at all. I... I like you very much, Mr. Chambers. And, uh, I like you. Look, a lawyer was mentioned back there. Was that the only person your uncle would want to see to arrange his affairs? No, there was another, and much more important. Algernon Sacco, his business advisor. Sacco? He has an office down on Pine Street. Bye now, Miss Wentworth. I'll be in touch with you. Yes, please do. Now, here's a brand new wrinkle. Algernon Sacco, crooked as a country road. A big operator and a shrewd one. You tangled with him a few times, but that was way back before he acquired respectability and a few rich clients. An old cackle voice guy, but smart as a brand new whip. So, you're down on Pine Street, old stone and steel. No pines, no pines at all. Yeah. Who do you wish to see? Mr. Sacco, and tell him I'm in a hurry. Nobody's in a hurry with Mr. Sacco. I'm in a hurry. Use that little intercom of yours and tell him Peter Chambers. Just a minute. Yes? Mr. Sacco, a gentleman here to see you. Says he's in a hurry. A Mr. Peter Chambers. Oh, oh, who did you say? A Mr. Peter Chambers. Oh, of course. Send him in at once. See what I mean, baby? I'm a real VIP. That's to your right, Mr. Chambers. Well, 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 good to see you again, my dear private operator. Now, boy, I shall not mince, as they say, words. To the point, then, Peter. Robert Wentworth. Oh, excellent client. Loaded? Twenty million dollars. Oh, boy, are you going to be sad to hear this. Yeah, what? He's dead. Dead? You're kidding. I never kid when it has to do with death. Now, look, I want the rundown on this guy, and I want it fast, and I want it all. Do you have a will? Uh, yes. Well, come on, come on, let's hear it. The, the will left his entire estate to his two nieces, Angela and Marie. Wow. Ten million dollars each, huh? And who was the executor to this will? Me, Algernon Sacco. Pretty piece of change involved for uh, Algernon Sacco. Yes, now that he's dead, before he changed his will, I'll earn that pretty piece of change. Fees and commissions, it bounces up, it bounces up. Now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, yes. wait a minute. You just said before he changed his will. Did he have any intention of changing it? Well, uh, well, I... Come on, look, pal, there might be a motive here for murder. Oh, you mean I... It's got its angles, but if it gets to the cops, it gets to the newspapers, and all your background gets washed up. Now, you can't use that algae, not the new, respectable Algernon Sacco. Uh, but, uh, what do you want to know? Well, you know what the man says all the time. The facts, pal, the facts. Well, he came in late last week and discussed changing his will. He felt that his nieces were well provided for, and he was making up his mind to leave his entire estate to medical research. Did you like that? No, I did not. So what did you do about uh, it? So I got in touch with Oliver Hartford. After all, a change of will meant a loss to Mr. Hartford's wife of $10 million. And when your wife loses, you lose. What did his Hartford do about it? I don't know. But he was going to tackle the old man and see if he couldn't talk him out of it. Okay, Algie, thanks for the information. Keep respectable, uh, pal. Peter Chambers! You're working now. You're beginning to smell what you suspected. Murder. You get up to Angela Wentworth's place and she opens the door for you and your eyes pop. She's wearing blue silk lounging pajamas and she has a pony of brandy in her hand. Blue silk lounging pajamas. They were born to be worn by Angela Wentworth. It's good to see you again, Mr. Chambers. Likewise, Miss Wentworth. You, uh... Seemed to be rolling with the blow. Well, I've been thinking about it. Uncle Robert was an old man and very ill. Perhaps it was for the best. Look, at the ball you attended when you lost your earring... Would you like some brandy, Mr. James? Well, I'll take a rain check on it. Now, that ball you attended, who went with you? I mean, uh, who was your escort? Oliver, my brother-in-law. Uncle insisted. I think I had one cocktail too many at that ball. That earring was gone before I realized it. Mr. Chambers? Mr. Chambers, where are you going? 
You're going to pay a social call on Oliver Hartford. You knock on his door and he opens and you pull your way in. Hey, what's the meaning of this? What's the matter with nothing, you? Nothing, nothing. Just got no manners, I suppose. Get out of here. I'm going, but you're coming with me. I'm going with you? Where? Downtown, police headquarters. And just what are we going to do there? I'm going to accuse you of murder. Oliver swings, you duck. You swing, Oliver ducks. But he doesn't duck good enough. He goes down and out. And as you finish the pivot of your swing, there stands Detective Lieutenant Louis Parker in the doorway. Real nice form, Pete. You're starting to get your shoulders into it. Hmm? Thanks, Louis. Incidentally, uh, apologies to the private eye. From whom? From me. I'm not busy anymore. So? So the old guy was murdered. He wasn't a suicide. That's my Louie. Got finished with the press of business. Had time to think. There's a spot of blood in the middle of the room. How come we find the old guy in the rocker by the window? Exactly. He was shot in the middle of the room. Yeah. Then he was pulled over to the rocker. The gun was wiped and put into his hand. Furthermore, downtown, a paraffin test shows the old guy never fired the gun, and that clinches it. That figures. Where have you been till now, Louie? Backtracking after you. Saw that psycho guy, saw that Angela, read that newspaper clipping. Mm. He took it to the ball, Oliver did. Sure, and he stuffs her full of cocktails and clips the earring. And sticks that phony ad in the paper. So he can get her out of the way. Mm. Then he goes in to see the old man, bumps him with his own gun, fixes it for suicide and leaves. And the door locks on the clicker, so we got a, a locked room in the bargain. Well, what's our next step, Louis? Well, we take this bum downtown. Let's get him back to consciousness. We take him downtown and see how he acts under a bright white light. Oliver Hartford at headquarters gets closeted with Detective Parker and a host of excellent interrogators. You wait across the street in Luke McCool's Lonesome Bar and Grill. You sip on a stinger and you ponder. It figures for about two hours. Brother, when cops know you've done it and you're an amateur, you're a blustering wise guy for part of the way, but pretty soon you break wide open. Unless you're very smart or very stubborn. And you've got a feeling that Oliver may be very stubborn. So you're off and running and you're making tracks again for Angela Wentworth's place. Come in, come in, Mr. Chambers. You're becoming quite a regular visitor. And I like it. You like it too, but you don't have the time. I offer brandy. Again, Mr. Chambers. And again, I've got to refuse. Double rain check this time, Miss Wentworth. Now look, look. That earring, may I have it? The earring? Angela, look, may I call you Angela? Oh, please do. Well, you can trust me with it. I had it once and I gave it back to you, remember? Yes, but why... Please, please, let me have it and I'll return it to you. And when I do, I've got a hunch I'll have the time for, um, uh, perhaps a brandy or two. All right, Mr. Chambers. Here it is. And so you're back in Luke McCool's lonesome bar and grill across the street from headquarters, and you're trifling with stingers again when Parker shows up. And he hangs a face in front of you that's longer than a lover's kiss. Pete, boy, we've got us a Tartar. Meaning who? Meaning that Oliver Hartford. Tough boy. That's tough. The guy killed Uncle Robert. So that his wife could pick up ten million solid simoleons. There's no one else, Louie. No one else could possibly have done it. Nobody with motive. You're so right, boy. Angela, she was with you. Sacco, no question, he was in his office all day. The other niece, Oliver's wife, we've checked it. She's in New Hampshire. No question, we've got the right pigeon. We've got him right up to the breaking point, but he won't break. Pete, all I need is a gimmick, one little thing to shove him over. And I've got it for you, Lieutenant. Got what? A crowbar that'll topple the rock. Only this crowbar is green, it's shiny, and it's worth 20,000 bucks. Here. Look. Hey, that's a beauty. Where'd you get that? Out of Oliver Hartford's suite. No. Yep. So, Louis, my lad, take this earring and shove it down his throat. Gimme, pal. So you're alone once more, and you've got your fingers crossed. Psychologically, it fits. But if it blows up, you're going to be in the middle of the explosion. If it blows, it'll blow all over you. 
But 20 minutes later, Park is back and he's beaming. He returns the earring and he claps you on the back. And a clap on the back from Parker is like a jolt of the jaw from Marciano. Got him, got him, got him good. Full confession, the works. Broke him down completely. Oh, and now he's up the other alley pleading for leniency. Uh, you tricked him, Louis. I tricked him? No, not me. That's my pride. I'm a straight cop. I tricked nobody. I know, I know. So I had to trick you into tricking him. Well, what are you talking about? The emerald earring. What about it? It's the wrong one. It's the one out of Uncle's pocket. The mate to the one that disappeared. The wrong one? Well, then where's the right one? Well, it must be where uh, psychologically it ought to be. Now, you had the guy on the brink, Louie. There wasn't time to go looking for the right one, so I used the wrong earring for the right purpose, and it worked. So now... <laughs> Let's go find the right one. You accompany Parker and five of his best boys to Oliver's suite, and they give it a professional going over, and they come up with the earring. Inside, a cake of soap. <laughs> Amateurs are all alike. They think they discovered a brand new hiding place just because they thought of it. Parker gives them to you, the pair. Go ahead, kiddo. You return them. You may as well get something out of this. Glory, at least. And so the private eye in proper tradition is back where he belongs, in the beautiful lady's apartment. He partakes of a bit of brandy, and then he presents her with a complete set of emerald earrings. Oh, Mr. Chambers, I, I don't know how to thank you. Think nothing of it, ma'am? A fee. Would you perhaps accept a fee? No, thanks. Nothing as mundane as a fee. But I... I just don't know how to thank you. Well, you think about it, Angela. Just sip your brandy and think. Come here, Mr. Chambers. Oh, I'm coming, ma'am. I think I know what you mean. Something like this? Mmm. Oh, Mr. Chambers... And there you've had Crime and Peter Chambers. Dane Clark was starred as Peter Chambers. Crime and Peter Chambers transcribed was created and written by Henry Kane. Others in the cast were Bill Zuckert, heard as Lieutenant Parker, Joyce Gordon as Angela, and Bernard Grant as Oliver. It was directed by Fred Way. And this is Fred Collins inviting you to tune in next week, same time, same station, for Dane Clark in Crime and Peter Chambers. And now, another mystery on Mystery Radio. Whitehall, one, two, one, two. Pretty, please. This is Scotland Yard. For the first time, Scotland Yard opens its secret files to bring you the authentic, true stories of some of its most baffling cases. These accurate records are drawn from the actual files of Scotland Yard. They're true in every respect except for the names of the participants, which for obvious reasons have been changed. Research on this exclusive series has been done by Percy Hoskins, chief crime reporter of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Some of the participants, Donald Rhodes, chief security officer of Heathrow Airport and a former Scotland Yard man. It was a considerable responsibility. Detective Sergeant Vivian Morris of Scotland Yard. I am a suburban housewife. Chief Inspector Robert Sheehan of Scotland Yard's Flying Squad. Step into the Black Museum here with me. I should like to show you something. John? Oh, is that you, Sheehan? Yes, I brought some friends to see you. Yeah, I'll be with you at once. Good afternoon. This is Chief Superintendent John Davidson, curator of Scotland Yard's Black Museum. Oh, how do you do? Well, I expect you've come about the relics of the Heathrow Affair. Right. Oh, on the table there behind you. 
Oh, we have. Oh, good. Yes, this one I recognize. Iron bar used by criminals in Heathrow affair. <laughs> some of my hair still sticking to it. Yeah, some of your blood too, Bob. Makes my head ache yet. Yeah. This is a briefcase carried by the GOC. And here, <clears throat> alterable license plate. Used by the GOC gang. You see, it reads GMU 436. Press the lever, please, John. And hey, presto. It reads CGC 829. Very neat, isn't it? You, of course, don't have the most important souvenir at all here, John. What's that? The half million pound sterling. I think that I should tell you a little about our flying squad. It consists of a large number of motor cars, all wireless equipped, all very fast, and all kept constantly in superb condition. The flying squad is on duty 24 hours a day, a highly mobile force, available on extremely short notice at any point in the entire London area. The members of the flying squad are hand-picked, and they're very unusual men. These three are typical. This is Detective Sergeant Nobby Clark of the Flying Squad. Yes, sir. I was one of Lord Lewis' commandos. I was at Narvik. Oh, yes, and at uh, Dieppe. Former leading petty officer Dusty Miller of HMS Phoebe. I am 29 years old. I am 6 foot 2 and I weigh 14 stone 8. I was welterweight champion of my ship, the light cruiser Phoebe. Detective Sergeant Ray Lawton, the Canadian. I, I'm about the, uh, the only policeman you ever heard of who was once a lion tamer. In a circus. Like all policemen in Britain, we seldom carry arms, although I assure you we're quite able to use them effectively should the occasion demand them. British policemen rely on the weapons provided by nature, augmented occasionally, of course, by the issue of stout truncheons or rubber cautions, which I understand the Americans call black jacks, and which are wondrously effective... Our job, you see, is not to shoot criminals, but to bring them to justice, or, if possible, to prevent their depredations. We find our methods rather effective. Well, in June 1948, the great new London airport, London had long since outgrown the famous old Croydon airdrome, was operating at capacity, although it was still far from completion. My old friend Donald Rhodes, a veteran Scotland Yard man who was chief security officer at Heathrow, came to call on me at the yard. Can't stay away from the old home place, can you, Donald, I asked. I always know where to come for help, Bob. What's the matter? You know the GOC? General officer commanding what? Ancient and honorable brigade of robbers. Oh, Moriarty? Moriarty, Townsend, Inge, Hughes, West, Simmons. Brown, Bennett, dozens of names. Yes, I know him. Or know of him, I should say. Big operator. Biggest. Well, his recce people have been looking us over. What's he after? A nice new airplane for himself? Gold. At Heathrow? We transship thousands of pounds in gold, you know. International affairs. Planes fly in dripping with the stuff. Leave it overnight with us and... Uh, Leave it lying about? We keep it as short a time as possible in our bonded warehouse under guard. Strongest safes in the country. Guarded, of course. <laughs> Try and get past them. Much gold? Plane load at a time. How's he going to do it? Tanks or something at dawn? Oh, he'll be much more clever than that. He always has been. That's why he isn't sewing mailbags at Dartmoor today. How'd you get on to all this? I brought the chap along, one of my mechanics. Like to talk to him? Naturally. Come in, will you, Karen? Yes, sir. This is former Lieutenant John Karn of the Royal Tank Regiment, Bob. Good afternoon, sir. Sit down, Mr. Kern. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, tell Chief Inspector Sheehan about it, will you please, Karen? Well, sir, I've been with Mr. Rhodes for quite some time. The day before yesterday, I received a telephone call from an acquaintance of mine named Edward Mybridge. Where did you know this Mybridge before? We were in prison together, sir. Prison? Well, Mr. Hitler's off flag, 18 in the war. Oh, German prison camp. Yes, sir. I hadn't seen him since we were demobbed and we had a drink together. Oh, let's not waste any time, please, Karen. Oh, no, sir. Well, he telephoned me again yesterday, sir, and... and you had another drink? Right, sir. He asked me how I'd like to make a lot of money and the whiskey, and I said, fine. I asked how. He said, passing on some information about Heathrow, how it was run, and the guards, and all that. What sort of looking chap was he? Red hair, squint eye, limps on right leg. Sound familiar to you, Bob? Not as what you call him, Colonel. 
Edward Mybridge, sir? His name's Ginger Johnson in our books. Unmistakable. He's not a nice fellow at all, Colonel. I found that out, sir. Oh? He warned me to say nothing to anyone about our conversation or he'd have to take steps. I remembered what he did to a German prison guard the day we were released, sir. What? Cut his head off with a mess knife. A very hard character indeed, this Edward Mybridge, alias Ginger Johnson. An old Borstal boy. He had served honorably in the army, but had returned to his old ways immediately upon demobilization. He was well known to us as one of the GOC's most useful lieutenants. This GOC, a man of great mental attainments, we knew for the leader of one of the most desperate gangs of lawbreakers in all our experience. A genuine storybook mastermind. He had for many years operated like a real general officer commanding, maintaining a small staff of rough-and-ready assistants like Mybridge, and recruiting his actual operatives, his army, for specific jobs as he needed them. Scotland Yard had never been able to lay a finger on him, although he was quite well known to us under a variety of names and ostensible professions. It was obvious that this was to be no small undertaking. He needed to be watched, and thoroughly, and beginning at once. I telegraphed a chief inspector I remembered in a Scottish town not far from Perth, and he reported to me at Scotland Yard the next day. I finished my briefing on what he had to do for us. Oh, I'll recognize him all right, sir. You have a lot of pictures of him. I wish we had him. I'm not to arrest him, sir. You'll not have a chance. He's a most law-abiding man. Now, he's never seen you in his life. And you understand, I don't want him to see you. Okay, sir. I'll want to know everywhere he goes, everyone he talks to. Aye, sir. Don't telephone in. Stay with him till you see him home in the evening. Then come in and report. Okay, sir. And good luck. You'll need it. I'm a very ordinary-looking man, sir. He'll never see me. Chief Inspector Ross was back in my office in two hours. Uh, <clears throat> well? He, uh, I was standing on the corner, sir, waiting for the bus with him. And just as it stopped, he turned to me and said, It's all right, Chief Inspector Andrew Ross. You can go back to Perthshire. I'm just going to my bank this time. A detective constable we imported from Leeds who looked like a clergyman was addressed pittingly by name by the GOC who trod on our man's toes. The language he employed was quite unclerical. The law, of course, does not permit tapping a suspected man's telephone, so we were forced to continue to try to trail him to find out precisely what he was doing. But infallibly, he recognized our people. Rhodes kept hounding us. He couldn't organize his plan to defend the airport until he knew more of the GOC's probable intentions. And the man outwitted us at every turn. There came a morning ten days or so later when I saw Vivian Morris, one of our women detective sergeants, pass my open door. Oh, uh, Sergeant, I called. Good morning, sir. Come in here a moment, will you? Uh, yes, sir. Vivian. Yes, sir. You're a very pretty girl. Why, thank you, sir. Have you ever followed a man? <laughs> Report of Detective Sergeant Vivian C. Morris to Chief Inspector Sheehan at Scotland Yard. I don't think he recognized me, sir. You look like a young suburban mother, Vivian. I am. I've got two girls. I shall send them each a hair ribbon. What happened? I got on his bus one street after him. There was no seat, but I spotted him at once. He was staring about the bus, looking for one of us. And we were not there. All at once, he leaped to his feet and offered me his seat. The very mirror of politeness. Yes. Then he rushed to the door, leered at a perfectly innocent man in a Homburg hat, and leapt off the bus almost before it had stopped. I couldn't follow, of course. Naturally. But tomorrow is another day. Report of Detective Sergeant Morris the second day. Yes, sir. He stayed on the bus this time. I had my knitting with me. I'm doing a pair of tartan stockings for Sheila for her birthday. He didn't pay the slightest attention to me. He got off at Waterloo Station with most of the others on the bus, including myself. He went into a small tobacconist shop... Here's the address, sir. Thank you. He was wearing a dark blue coat and a bowler hat and carried a small briefcase. I went into a lion's corner house, you know the one, sir, where I could watch the door of the tobacconist. I had three buns and three cups of coffee before he came out again, this time wearing a brown tweed suit and hat and without the briefcase. He looked about him sharply and hailed a taxi cab and they drove off. The number of the taxi cab was EBC 414. Thank you, Sergeant. Most well done. 
Would you just shove me the telephone, please? Thank you. There's an urgent telephone call waiting for you, sir. Who is it? Inspector Green of Traffic, sir. What does he want? He said it's quite important, sir. All right, put him on. Yes, Green? Uh, Green here, yes, Shane. See, I hear you're interested in Ginger Johnson. What about him? He's dead. I refuse to burst into tears. He was apparently struck by a motor car. Where? On the Great West Road near the New Heathrow Airport. Oh, was he killed instantly? Well, he lived only a few minutes after we picked him up. Well, he's out of our hair. Oh, uh, did he say anything? Uh, uh, just a sec. What must he say? He's a devil. Uh, say, perhaps you'd know what he was talking about. What did he say? He said, tell Karen not to drink the tea. It's poisoned. <laughs> Sounds quite Max Romerish, doesn't it? <laughs> You're sure he said, tell Karen? Did he say Karen? Yeah, that's right, Karen. See, I don't know any Karen. Quite all right, old boy. I do. Oh, uh, thank you very much. I hung up on him. Is there anything I can do to help, sir? Yes, go out and get someone started on tracing that taxi cab at once, please. Here, take the paper with a number on it. Right, sir. Will you put me to Heathrow Airport at once, Chief Security Officer? Oh, good, you're here, Bob. Oh, Donald, I was just telephoning you. Never mind, operator, he's just come in. Look, Don, what about Colonel the T? Eh? Ginger Johnson just got killed. His dying words were to tell your man, Kern, not to drink the tea because it's poisoned. Tea? What's it mean? I think he was off his rocker. Thought he was still in the German prison camp. Could be. What I came over for, I have a signal from the foreign office. The Americans are sending us some money soon. Much? Mere 388,000 pounds in gold. When? Ten days from today. Wonder if that's what the GOC is getting his sights on. A great many people knew that we were expecting a large amount of gold from America. He has a long nose. That long, do you suppose? You had a great deal of experience with him while you were here at the yard. I wonder. Oh, excuse me, sir. Uh, Come in, Vivian. You know Sergeant Morris, don't you, Donald? Indeed I do. How are the girls, Vivian? They're fine, sir. Excuse me, sir. Uh, They're checking the taxi driver, sir. They'll telephone you. Good. You can go home now, if you like. You want to try again tomorrow? Of course, sir. Good girl. Good night. Good night, sir. Good night, Mr. Rose. Good night. What's... what's she doing? She's caught up with the GOC. Find out anything good? Shortly. Look, we'll have to get going on this thing at once. If it is the ship, the new shipment he's after. I know it. There's not much we can do until we have an idea how he intends to try. Pity Ginger Johnson died. He might have told us instead of babbling about poison tea in German prison. Sheehan here. Shattinger here, sir. In the 999 room. Yes, Shattinger. And all the good luck on tracing that taxi cab, sir. Found the driver had just come into the company garage. Had his trip book with him. Good. The uh, trip at 10.23 this morning was from Waterloo Station to a shop in Sowell. A chemist shop. Sir. A chemist shop? Yes, sir. The taxi driver said he saw his fare enter the shop. George Schill, chemist, he said. George Schill, I know that name. What George, about George Schill, Schill has been involved in a number of narcotics cases. Yes, I know. Thank you very much. What about George Schill? That's who the GOC was visiting this morning. Is he in the narcotics thing, too? We shall find out, old boy. I wonder where he went from there. Probably to bump off Ginger Johnson. Bump him off? Now tell me why he should do that. Well, good old Ginger might have been looking on the wine when it was red. Bible, old chap. Or the whiskey when it is amber. And blabbered about his talk with your man, Kern. The GOC wouldn't like that, would he? He wouldn't know whether Kern had talked to you. And he might have decided to prevent any more talk by Ginger to the wrong bloke. Ah, a little fantastic. But plausible. Where'd they find Ginger? Uncomfortably close to your precious airport on the Great West Road. Ah. Yes. Put me through to Superintendent Trevelyan. Is that you, Trevelyan? Sheehan here. Look, sir, I'd like to have a detail of men at once on an investigating job. Yes, sir, most important. I'd like to have a check made at once of all houses along Great West Road near the New Heath Airport. I'll direct them if you like. Eh? Oh, thanks, Donald. Mr. Rhodes, the chief security officer at the airport, will help them out. I'm looking for a house that has uh, a recent lodger check the houses that overlook the airports first. Please, for a lodger that did not return this evening. 
Here's the description. Tall, red-haired, has a squint eye and a gimpy right leg. Got it, sir? Thank you. Yes, sir, I'll get a search warrant and come at once when they find him. Thank you very much. They can telephone me at home if they find the place out of hours. Right. A few minutes after midnight, I was awakened by a telephone call from one of the men of Superintendent Trevelyan's squad. After some difficulty in obtaining a search warrant at that time of night, I proceeded to the house in which he had telephoned. The house was almost directly across the road from the main gate of the airport. Donald Rhodes, who was awaiting my arrival, accompanied me upstairs to the former lodger's room, which provided an excellent view of the airport from its single window. The householder turned on the lights and left us. The room was quite neat. There's a, there's a chair by the window. Yes. Turned towards the window. Cushions rumpled quite a bit. Somebody's been sitting on it a lot. Here's an officer's musette bag in the closet. Have a look. That's his, all right. See? E. Mybridge, Lieutenant, King's Royal Rifle Corps. Good regiment. He was a good soldier, I expect. Here's a drawer on the table. Ah. What? E. Lights, Wetzler. Good pair of glasses, these German officers. 10x30. He was spying. That's this. What's this? Royal Corps Signals Field Message Pad. Was reports to the GOC, eh? <laughs> Quite regimental. Been using it, too. Good. What? Writing on the sheet he just tore out left an impression on the second sheet. Let's see. Hold up the lamp there, Donald. Mm -hmm. No, hold it so the light comes across the page from the edge so it casts a shadow on the ridges of the writing here. Hmm? Read it. Hold the lamp still. See to guards at... at what's this word? Looks, looks like midnight. What guards will he see to midnight? Makes no sense. Let me look again. No, that isn't see. Here. No. Looks like... I know what it is. What? Tea. Tea? Tea to guards at midnight. I don't... What was it Ginger said to tell Curran? Don't drink the tea. It's poisoned. It was the custom at that time for a local tea shop to send a man with a tricycle around the airport every night with a huge container of hot tea. It was a familiar sight to everyone on the field, and the sound of his funny little French taxi horn was the signal for everyone to have his tuppence ready for his tin cup of the stuff. The GOC's plan was obvious. If that tea were poisoned, then if they all drank it, and if half a million pounds in gold lay unguarded with a dead man at the gates... A most diabolical scheme. Nevertheless, a feasible one, by the GOC's reckoning. But he had overlooked some factors in his reckoning. One factor he'd overlooked was a rough, tough man's aversion to poisoning a wartime friend. The other was the flying squad. I sent men the following morning to all parts of London on a search for certain men whom we knew to have worked for the GOC before. A number of them were in prison. But we discovered that eleven of them had been mysteriously disappeared. They, we reasoned, had been mobilized by the GOC for final briefing and held in readiness for the attack. The GOC himself had left for parts unknown. He reappeared only once, and Vivian Morris reported that he had made a most curious purchase. Six pairs of nylon stockings, the largest sizes available. He knew something of the GOC's plans. This was our final briefing. In the flying squad garage. Repeat your instructions, Nobby Clark. I'm to drive to seal lorry that picks up all the guards and takes them to the shelter. I drop off a flying squad man for everyone I pick up. The flying squad men are to be dressed in BOAC uniforms like those the guards wear. Each will be armed with a truncheon or a rubber cough. At the shelter, I'm to tell the guards I pick up what is going on. Right. Detective Sergeant Norton, what do you do, lion tamer? I'm in charge of the flying squad men. It'll be planted in the bonded warehouse where the money is. And you, Dusty Miller? I'd like to be with Lion Tamer. What's your job? Oh, I'm in general charge of the cars. Soon I was welterweight champion. We'll save one of them for you, Dusty. Say to it, Martin. All right, Dusty. Now remember, not a man must touch the team. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Not that poison had hurt any of you, but I, I shall need it for evidence. Well, couldn't we offer them a drink, sir? Donald? Look, it's my airport and it's my responsibility. What do you do? I just sit in that bloody little shelter by the telephone, and when they're all inside, I'm to lift the receiver. Good. And the sergeant from the 999 room? Constable Lloyd, sir. I'm to watch the special switchboard for it to light up when Mr. Rhodes lifts the receiver. And then? Then at once I'm to shout into my wireless microphone one word. Well? Go. Where's Dusty Miller? Oh, then I bellow yoinks and the cars with the rest of us converge on every entrance to the airport. Render such assistance as might be necessary. None will be necessary, Dusty. And Lawton, when do you start operations? Not till they start to open the safe, sir. Then what? Then we smite them, hip and thigh, sir. Carry them all off to the pokey. To the what? Oh, sorry, sir, that's Canadian. Uh, to the bowels of the vast time. And when you're down, boys, Heathrow will supply beer for all. A bottle of pigs! <laughs> beer and bandages, boys. The day came. The airplane from America arrived with the gold. It was transferred under heavy guard to the bonded warehouse. Donald Rhodes supervised that himself. I joined the guard at the gatehouse of the airport about 11 that evening. It was very quiet. That'll be Clark, taking our men around and picking up the regular guards. Very lonely and very quiet. Maybe they're not come, I thought. I borrowed a cigarette from the gate guard, but I crushed it out. They mustn't know there's anybody here besides you, I told him. That's right, sir. Squidge down on the floor. I waited. That was Nobby, taking the regular guards to the shed. I... Who's that? Hart gave it, sir. Yes? Clark here. Tell Mr. Sheehan I've picked up all the guards and our people are waiting. Yes, it was... I heard him. Just in time, sir. Here comes the tea. The man with the tricycle came up and stopped. Hello, Herbert. Hello, James. Thought I was going to be late. How come? Hey, got your tin cup? Yeah. Some guard or somebody stopped me down the road a bit and demanded what I was doing. Made me open up the tea and let him look at it. Got all cold, I'm afraid, him staring at it. All right, Thomas, please. Right. Go on in. The guard brought in the tea, which we set on the floor to keep as evidence. The driver came back with the empty container and went on about his business. The guard and I crouched on the floor of the little hut, waiting. Only the sound of a belated airplane or two broke the silence. It was half an hour later when we heard the sound of a lorry. I crawled under the table. The guard lay back in his chair, motionless. The lorry stopped at the gate and a man got out. He looked in our window. Here's one of them now. I stood up cautiously. The lorry moved straight to the bonded warehouse and stopped. We heard them at the door. We kept quiet in the dim light. The door opened. I watched through a crack in the sheltered door. My hand on the telephone to the 999 room. We sat in our covers, motors running, hidden at the road junctions all around the airport. My eyes began to hurt, watching that switchboard. I said to the guards in the shed, now mind you, not a sound. I could see the shadowy figures clustering about the door to the bonded warehouse. A man whispered in my ear. What have they got on their heads? They look like ratty elephants. They had women's stockings on for masks. They sure looked weird with their legs hanging down over their faces. I hope the GOC is with them, I thought. The last one entered. I picked up the receiver. There it is! Go, you sods, go! Come on, the flying squad! They're at the safe. I saw a man running towards me. He tore the stocking from his head and I leaped out the door at him. Stop! Stop, I yell, stop! I'm Inspector Chief! When I came to an hour later, I discovered the grandfather of all bumps on my head from the loaded cosh the man had caressed me with. 
My men of the flying squad stood about, many of them bandaged to the eyes, but all happily quaffing beer. We totted up the score. Eleven prisoners, including the one who had struck me and whom the gate guard had taken care of. Two broken arms, one smashed nose, and a turned ankle. A pile of heavy cautious and short iron bars the robbers had carried. And the 388,000 pounds still untouched. The prisoners bore a large variety of contusions, black eyes and broken heads. I, uh, I had a headache for a week. We never did catch the GOC, but we sent 11 of his men to prison, having caught them red-handed. And to this day, no one has ever dreamed of robbing Heathrow again. If they do, some, may I have a chance at them, too? another true story from the files of Scotland Yard. Only the names were, for obvious reasons, changed. Research for Whitehall 1212 is done by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Join us again next time on Mystery Radio X. X.